0: Well, good morning. We will go ahead and get started with our time this morning. Happy Easter. Happy Resurrection Day. Um, You know, yeah, you can go ahead and start it, man. Pastors are always searching for ready uh, illustrations and... Easter morning arrives on April 1st, and you, you don't have to think very hard in order to arrive at one of those, right? And when you have April Fool's uh, Sunday lined up with Easter, there, there, there's something that's just right there available for you uh, to make use of, although I, I think it, it, it puts us in a bit of a testy scenario going forward. I don't know what kind of family you have, but be on your guard today on a day when people are eating chocolate and when things are like hidden away in eggs and you don't know what what you're going to open up and find, uh, or maybe you get sent on some sort of Easter egg hunt in the middle of the city with all kinds of complicated instructions and nothing to follow through from that. So just, you know, fair warning, be be prepared for whatever your uh, April Fool's Easter experience uh, might contain. Uh, but but this is an appropriate thought for us because the Apostle Paul makes the point in, in 1 Corinthians 15 that if if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we are a bunch of fools. Uh, we are to be pitied. Here's, here's how he states it in First Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain And your faith is in vain. It's empty. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now, in every one of those statements, there's an implication about the contrary fact, right? If Christ has been raised, then we're no longer in our sins. And we have a hope that extends beyond this life. But, but notice that those realities, they're, they're attached to, to things that have happened in history, in real space and in real time. There was a man, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, who 2000 years ago was a corpse who then stepped out of a grave. And unless that has happened, everything that we're doing is foolish this morning. No matter how sentimental it is, no matter how associated it is to nice family traditions, it is one big pointless affair unless there is a risen man in the heavens and a Savior who lives and who will uh, restore all things in the end. And so the question is, uh, is, can we know that this is the case? Is there good reason to believe that this is what happened in time and in history 2,000 years ago, or has it been the greatest April Fool's prank of all time, uh, leading astray uh, billions of people throughout history? And, and, and I want to make uh, some important distinctions before we, we dive into the, the topic this morning, because this is something that we, we, we can't confuse here. Uh, you know, Paul assumes that Christianity is a, is a faith in which history and facts matter. This is the fact that makes all uh, the difference. And so, the, the Christian faith is is built upon the reality of the resurrection of Christ. But that's not to say that it's built upon the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Here's, here's how a, a, an apologist named William Lane Craig puts it. I think this is a really useful distinction. He says, "...in considering the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus... It is important to avoid giving the impression that the Christian faith is based on the evidence for Jesus' resurrection. And there he means kind of independent historical evidence. The Christian faith is based on the event of the resurrection. It is not based on the evidence for the resurrection. And, and, and when you start to think this through, that, that, that's just common sense because uh, there are so many things that have occurred in history that you and I either have very little or no historical evidence for it. But that doesn't mean it hasn't happened. Right? There are things that, that you know, just we're not even aware that have, have occurred throughout the ages. But just because you know, certain documents and evidence haven't traveled down the line to arrive at us in a satisfactory way doesn't mean that they haven't occurred. And so we need to make a distinction between knowing that something is true and being able to show that something is true and my hope is that in our time this morning we'll we'll discuss some fresh ways to show the the authenticity of the resurrection as as a real historical event but that doesn't mean that until you have this information you don't know that Jesus is risen we 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 know that like we know anything else we we know it in our experience we know that in our encounter we know that in in the life that we have that's been Transformed as God's mercy has now marked all of our days. I mean, think about this: How do you know that you are right now uh, sitting in this room in these chairs, and that there really was a past, and that we didn't all arrive right now with false memories? I don't know if you ever, you know, think those philosophical thoughts like that. Um, if you try to give evidence for that, you're not going to be able to provide much. But that doesn't mean that you're not justified in knowing, no, I really am here, and my memories are real, and it really is Easter Sunday, and my mom and my dad really are my mom and my dad, right? Uh, there are a lot of things that we, we know that we might not be able to argue for and show with logic and reasons and evidence, but that doesn't mean that we don't know them. And the reason why I want to make that distinction is because we, we live in a, in a culture that sometimes... Presses people and says, well, unless, uh, unless you can argue that this is true, then you can't know it. And, and that's just not true to a variety of aspects of life, and it's also not true when it comes to knowing the risen Savior. God's Spirit bears witness in our hearts that we have experienced Jesus Christ as alive. And, and yet, at the same time, there is really good evidence for the resurrection, and we want to discuss some of that This morning, and let me just make this this point quickly about uh, how this sounds in the world and culture that we live in, because we spent some time uh, toward the beginning of this year considering kind of the realities of the age, this age of imminence, this this kind of secular culture that we occupy, and and it's it's one in which uh, facts don't really seem to make a claim on somebody they don't necessarily hold sway in terms of what's real and and compelling. And this is no less true for us as believers, right? We, we, We spent some time in corporate prayer this morning praying through uh, some resurrection indicatives that Scripture proclaims is true over our, our lives. And I encourage you to grab one of those prayer targets on your way out if you didn't get one of those because just a lot of rich reality that Scripture says is, is, is ours because Jesus has been raised from the dead. And yet as believers, we, we can know all that's the case on some factual level and not really, being, not really affecting how we're feeling, how we're relating with people, our attitudes and responses, the level of victory and and sense of newness of life that we're we're walking in, and so we can experience that same sort of disconnect as well. And I know that Pastor Keith is going to be describing some of that in his, in his message this morning. But but I feel this in the in the culture around us. I feel this when I you know travel to a high school campus and talk to some of the students there. You can demonstrate uh, that something is is true that it's verifiable that there's good reason to believe this that that doesn't seem to really hold sway with these students as okay well then why does that matter well it matters because it's true <laughs> but there's some other missing element that they that 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 they're looking for there because we 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 tend to be more persuaded by our feelings than facts today and and that's not entirely a bad thing because there is an aspect of how we feel that God has designed us to respond to uh, truth a certain way. Um, But it's interesting that even, even as feelings seem to matter more than facts in the culture around us, Facts still matter a good bit because we we live in the in the day when something has to be like scientifically verifiable in order for uh, it, it, it to to be worthwhile for us for us believing. And so, if we can if we can show that there are good facts concerning the resurrection of Jesus, that that's something that still matters even in a postmodern world. Right? So that's kind of setting up what we're doing this morning and, and we're gonna dive in now to seven facts concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And, and 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 what am I talking about here? What I'm talking about are are seven things that have happened in history that the vast majority of historians And scholars of the ancient world recognize as true. And I don't just mean people who are Christian, Uh, we're, we're talking about agnostic scholars, uh, Buddhist scholars, you know, in, in, in some cases, but just people that they, they familiarize themselves with the evidence from the ancient world in the first century in, in particular, and, and, and they say, this is pretty indisputable, that this is what has happened in history. And then the question is, okay, well, what do you do with that? What, what's, the, what's the conclusion that you should arrive at when you consider these things? All right, so fact number one is the death of Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion to the despair of his disciples. Uh, All four of the Gospels... Record this and and we need to think about the gospels in in this way originally uh, you know these are obviously to us they 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 are god breathed they are part of god 's word they they are intrinsically authoritative because it 's god 's speech, but the Bible, as it comes to us where it 's bound together as a as a single book with nice uh, like calfskin leather right uh, that 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 hasn 't been true from the early ages of of history, and that's not uh, where these these documents, you know, are how they originally arrived. These are these are independent sources. These are distinct uh, eyewitness accounts concerning the life and ministry of of Jesus. And so, all four of the of the gospel sources attest to the death death of Jesus. And there are at least three early non-Christian sources outside the New Testament that testify to the existence of Jesus and his death by crucifixion. And if you've had some familiarity with the Alpha Course here, you've probably heard from some of these before. Uh, Josephus, an early Jewish historian, says this, At that time, there appeared Jesus a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure, and he gained a following among many Jews and among many of Greek origin. And when Pilate... Because of an accusation made by the leading men among us, condemned him to the cross. Those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this very day, the tribe of Christians named after him has not died out And so, here you have this uh, early Jewish historian writing within decades of uh, Jesus' life and death, describing his death by crucifixion uh, under the authority of Pontius Pilate and the, and the movement of uh, followers that have come from that, and, and he's not himself a, a believer. So, here's a, a secular uh, agnostic historian named John Dominic Crossan, and he writes, Jesus' death by crucifixion under Pontius Pilate is as sure as anything historical can ever be. Right? And, and and again, this is this is talking about what you can show is true. Not just what you can know is true, but what by history you can show is true. How, how do you how do you show anything is true in, in history? How do you show that you know, in fourteen ninety two Columbus sailed the ocean blue, or that Abraham Lincoln was the sixteenth president of the United States uh, you don 't do it by uploading a video to youtube all right that that's how if you're if you're like sixteen and, and under, you think that anything is verifiable because it showed up on the internet, but that 's uh, increasingly not the case in the in the day of uh, photoshop and in the day when honestly. The, the, the technology is available where you can splice together somebody's video, and, and you can you can you can take previous recordings of their voice. And so, if we want to take like president trump and and have him say something ridiculous which would never happen in reality i know uh but if you, if you want to attribute something to him there's programming where you can create a whole video with his face and his voice and so in the day of youtube you really can't know what is true or, or, or false but the way that we know anything from history is we, we examine the sources we look at eyewitness testimony we look at things like archaeology and other kinds of historical evidence and john dominic Crossan is saying as sure as you can know that in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, we can know that Jesus was crucified and killed under Pontius Pilate. That is a remarkable claim coming from an atheist. Um, The nature of crucifixion is one that matters in this discussion, uh, that there's no evidence that anyone has ever survived a Roman crucifixion. Um, I don't know know how many of us are familiar with this. But you know when when you're crucified, it's not death by nails, right? It's not the nails that that kill you. First, there there was a a scourging. Or the Roman scourging would literally uh, beat you within an inch of your life. There'd be an amazing amount of blood loss at that point. Uh, you're beaten to the point of exhaustion and and organ failure in, in some cases, and then a- after that, the, 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 the actual crucifixion would, would involve, the, so there, there are three nails, one through uh, each wrist, and then the body would be turned like this, and there would be one nail through the ankles down below, and so you would be twisted and contorted in this shape, and what it would do, it would, it would pin your chest in, in the inhale position, and so, you, you, it, when your body is in that position, you can't let air out. You can't exhale. And so, what would have to the, the, the crucified victim would have to put all of his weight on that nail, run through his ankles, and push his scourged back up the uh, the beam of the cross in order to get himself into a place where he can breathe out, and then fall back down. And. After a, a little while, exhaustion sets in, and and there's death by asphyxiation, and so that that's what actually would happen. And and and, and the and the Roman soldiers were experts in ensuring that this took place. Properly. And so here's another item that, again, if you've been involved in Alpha, you'd be familiar with the Journal of the American Medical Society on the Physical Death of Jesus writes Clearly, the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted. Why why do they say that? Well, they say that because of the blood and the the water that flowed out after the spear was stabbed into his side, which already indicated that his heart had shut down. Um, And supports the traditional view that the spear, thrust between his right ribs, probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, the interpretation, based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross, appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. And, And the important part about this, right, so the way that this fact is fully stated, Jesus of Nazareth died by crucifixion to the despair of his disciples, left them in a condition of being hopeless, unmotivated, certainly not strategizing some scheme that they can come up with at this point to continue on the mission of Jesus. For all intents and purposes, it seemed that Jesus was a failure. right, fact number two the burial of Jesus. After his crucifixion, Jesus was buried in a tomb by Joseph of Arimathea. And and there are several uh, of these facts, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the appearances. They, they, they show up in this early creed that Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians Fifteen and, and, and the structure of this New Testament scholars recognize when he talks about, "I delivered to you what I also received that and, 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 and it has this kind of grammatical structure to it, that and that and that, so th- this, is a, this is a creed that the the early church would recite concerning Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And Paul's saying, when I showed up in Corinth, we're going to look at that in a few Sundays um, on Sunday mornings as we're arriving at our our series of 1 Corinthians. Uh, But by the time Paul's in Corinth, he's bringing to them what he had already received. And he had received this literally within months of Jesus' death. This was already the saying that was spreading around the church, right? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All four of the Gospels include uh, the burial, and they include it in this this same order and and formula. Uh, There are certain... Criteria that historians use just to recognize that a document has the ring of authenticity. And again, this isn't what's uh, uh, proving the authority of the Bible for us. Uh, God's word comes authoritative because it's his word. But this is just showing us that it it has the features that ring true to life and experience. And one of them is called the criterion of embarrassment. And so, you know... If you're going to exaggerate something or if you're going to make up a story, you don't tend to do so in a way that makes you coming out looking like a jerk or a loser. (laughs) Uh, Right? If you're going to exaggerate some of the details... You're going to come out in some way being a little bit funnier, a little bit stronger, a little bit uh, more successful than you are in in reality. But there are embarrassing details that show up all over the place when it comes to the gospel narratives concerning Jesus' death and resurrection. And one of them is that uh, the man who actually ensured that Jesus had an honorable burial was not one of his closest 12 friends and the pillars of the early church, Uh, but Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the council that condemned Jesus to death. Now, why in the world, if, if you're just making stories up, none of this has anything to do with history, and you're just crafting some tale because you want to convince people that there was this crucified man who rose from the the grave, why would that be how you would make up the story? That's the kind of detail that you would not include, you know, if if you're these 12 men trying to impress the world, um, unless you're just trying to tell something as it really happened. And, um, you know, there's also something called the criterion of enemy attestation. Or what does that mean? Well, if your mom, I don't know your relationship with your mom, uh, don't believe the press about me that my mom says. Because, again, if she's going to exaggerate things, it's going to be a little bit more in my, in my favor, in my favor, right? So if, if my mom compliments me and says, oh, Evan, he's just the greatest, you've got to take that with a grain of salt. But if, if somebody that you know really doesn't like me says something, no, nah, he really is able to do this or that, well, that has added weight to it because it's coming from an enemy, right? Enemy attestation. And the early opponents of Christianity, none of them disputed that Jesus was buried. And in fact, none of them disputed that the tomb was empty. Uh, what they accused is the disciples stole the body. Well, why do you have to come up with that argument? Well, because there really was a burial and there really was an empty tomb, right? Let, let's look at that. Next fact, fact three, the empty tomb. My clicker is not loving me anymore. Chris, can you help me out, man? There you go. Uh, on the Sunday following the crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. And this, again, comes from that creed in First 1 Corinthians 15.4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And the idea that Paul, a Jewish man, would use that word resurrection, that he was raised, and that what he has in mind is still there's a body inside the tomb, uh, that doesn't make sense. So sometimes people try to say, well, originally Jesus' followers, they just thought he was raised in this spiritual sense, like he lived on in their hearts or lived on in, in heaven. That's not what the word resurrection means. In the Jewish worldview, so for Jesus to be raised means there 's no body uh, left behind in in that tomb um, we 've mentioned how all the Gospels uh, describe the empty tomb, and even uh, the early opponents of Christianity recognize this uh, here 's something again: the criterion of embarrassment um, in the ancient world, both for, in Jewish culture and Roman culture. The testimony of of women wasn't admitted into court. All right. Uh, Sorry, ladies, that I'm going to have to quote these things for you. But the Talmud says, sooner let the words of the law be burnt than delivered to women. (laughs) Uh, Josephus, we quoted from him earlier, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. I don't know how you get both levity and boldness. It's kind of like, you know, you just can't win. Women, uh, you're you're, you're too light or you're too bold. I don't know. Uh, But how is this relevant for the empty tomb? Well, again, if you're just making up stories... you're not going to make it the case that the people who discover the tomb as empty and the first ones who can testify to this fact were all uh, women. And, and there's also the, the factor that um, Jesus was buried in Jerusalem, and and Jerusalem is is kind of the inception of Christianity. It would have never gotten out of the off the ground if they're basing their entire message on the reality of an empty tomb. If No, it's right here. The body's right here, right? So, uh, it just wouldn't have worked, and and Jesus' body has never been produced or discovered ever since. Fact number four, the appearances of Jesus. On multiple occasions and under various circumstances, different individuals and groups of people experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. Let's look back at that early creed that dates within months of uh, Jesus' death, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. right, so Clearly, and, and, you, and you see this throughout the book of Acts as well in the early sermons of the church, Jesus' followers claim to have seen him. Right? At least that is clear. That's not disputed by anyone that, that Jesus' early followers claimed to see him alive from the dead. And, and they believed their claim. Right? They, they were willing to give their lives because they were convinced that the risen Savior had showed up in front of them. And, and, you know, people say, well, people die for a lie all the time, you know? Um, and that's true. People will give their life for a lie, but they won't give their life for something they know is a lie. That's, that's an important difference right there. There's never been a case in history where someone has willingly died for something that he knew full well was... Was false, and again, this is one of the seven facts that virtually all historians and scholars recognize. So, the atheistic New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann writes, "It may be taken, right? This is remarkable, right here. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ." Just feel the weight of that. He's saying that may be historically certain that that's what happened. Now, Gerd Ludemann doesn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But he believes that these disciples were f- fully convinced they saw a risen Savior. And we'll talk about his explanation for that later on. All right? fact number five. The belief in Jesus' resurrection. This is something that's easy to kind of skip over. Uh, this is significant, right? The original disciples believe that Jesus was raised from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary, right? They, they move from their, their position of despair and hopelessness to being bold proclaimers of the lordship of Jesus. Uh, Sunday morning after the resurrection of Jesus has become the primary day of worship in the early church and monotheistic Jews began worshiping Jesus as divine. Right, this is a significant worldview shift that doesn't just happen because of anything. And, and what do we mean by despite having every predisposition to the contrary? Right? The, the, the resurrection. When they talk about Jesus being raised from the dead. What that means is not just that Jesus was resuscitated. It doesn't just mean that Jesus, you know, was alive and that he died and that he was alive again, which that in and of itself would be amazing and is a miracle. And by the way, let me just throw this out there. Sometimes people say, maybe you've come across this in, in the past, something like, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And so if you're going to claim something like Jesus has come back from the dead, your evidence has got to be like super, super certain and really, really good. All right, that's something that people love to throw around. I think it dates back to Carl Sagan. Uh, well, is that really true? If something's an extraordinary claim... Does it require extraordinary evidence? You know, what if I said that my uh, driver's license ID number was 0894322578? and that's not the right number because this is probably going to show up on the internet. Um, that's an extraordinary claim. Well, what's the likelihood that uh, of all the possible number combinations, that's the one that's my driver's license ID number? Uh, well, do you believe me that that's my ID number, other than the fact that I just told you it's not? Uh, what would be the evidence that would be needed to, to show that extraordinary claim? Uh, I just would need to show you my ID and show you that's the number. It's, it's very ordinary evidence. If I said, you know, in my backyard I've got a rocket ship, all right, that's an extraordinary claim. How would, I, how would I give you evidence of that? I'd take you to my backyard and show you, here's the rocket ship. That's pretty ordinary evidence. And so to show that a resurrection has happened, you need evidence that the person lived Evidence the person was dead, and then evidence that the person was alive after the evidence that they were dead. Which, for that, you just need ordinary evidence. But the resurrection isn't just the claim that a dead man has come back to life in the way that Lazarus came back to life. The resurrection is the claim that Jesus was raised to glory, to a glorified perfect body, to something that was a product of the consummation, which everybody was looking to happen at the end of history. And yet, that that's happened ahead of time. That that's happened right in the middle of history. And in order for Jews in the first century to come to believe that, there would have had to have been a radical experience and encounter. Right? Here's how Timothy Keller puts it in his book, The Reason for God. By Jesus' day, many Jews had come to hope that someday in the future, there would be a bodily resurrection of all the righteous when God renewed the entire world and removed all suffering and death. The resurrection, however, was merely one part of the complete renewal of the whole world, according to Jewish teaching. The idea of an individual being resurrected in the middle of history... While the rest of the world continued on, burdened by sickness, decay, and death was inconceivable, if someone had said to any first century Jew, so-and-so has been resurrected from the dead, the response would be, are you crazy? How can that be? Has disease and death ended? Is true justice established in the world? Has the wolf lain down with the lamb? Ridiculous. The very idea of an individual resurrection would have been an impo- as impossible to imagine to a jew as to a greek and it would have been even more impossible for a greek to imagine uh that would take place now why is that significant well we'll look in a moment that one of the explanations for uh the resurrection appearances and for people coming to believe in the resurrection was a hallucination but when you hallucinate it's it's what's in your mind already that's there to work with right You're just the resources of your own private mental world. But this is a new idea. This wasn't in the mind of a first century Jew that a resurrection would have happened in the middle of history. And so for them to come to this conclusion, it would have had to have been revealed to them and displayed clearly before their eyes. All All right, Quickly, two more facts. Fact number six, that James was converted. The skeptic James, the half-brother Jesus, was converted to Christianity because he believed that the risen Jesus appeared to him. Then he appeared to James. It's part of that creed. Um, Josephus recognizes James as an historical individual, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. Uh, That's just statements from the Gospels that James was not a believer in Jesus during his earthly life. He thought he was wacko and they wanted to arrest him and bring him back home and commit him to an insane asylum. Uh, Something radical had to happen in order for him to later, and as well as his other brother Jude, describe himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you come to the inclusion that the guy you used to brush your teeth with and, and thought, you know, just was totally crazy was the Lord, Jesus Christ. Something radical had to um, appear to you and, and, and that's why historians recognize that James was converted having been convinced he had seen Jesus. And then Saul of Tarsus, right? Clear example here. An opponent... Wanting to stamp out Christianity uh, comes to be one of the pillars of the faith because he was convinced that the risen man had showed up before him. And so, uh, last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me from the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But then he talks about the grace of God that was at work in him. Right, Paul's conversion, it's described in the Book of Acts and Galatians and Philippians and First and Second Corinthians and First and Second Timothy and so on. It was always on his mind. It's testified in a variety of distinct sources and and there is no historian who doubts this. There's 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 nobody with any credibility that doubts that there was a man who wanted to see Christianity's ruin because he believed that Jesus was a blasphemer and a criminal who came to the place of being one of the foundational leaders of the church because he had seen Jesus. Now, if you have Paul here... You have all these other ones, because here in 1 Corinthians 15, you get the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the empty tomb, the appearances of Jesus, belief in Jesus' resurrection. You get the conversion of James in this passage, and the conversion of Paul. And so, you know, either Paul, you know, you 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 guys, you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's liar, lunatic, and Lord framework for Jesus. Jesus either was totally a liar and a deceiver, or he was wacko, or he really was who he said he was. That applies to this man as well. Either Paul was totally insane, and I've spent a lot of time reading his writings. He does not read like someone uh, who is insane, uh, or he's just making all this stuff up, and just was a charlatan and a manipulator, or he's saying what he really is convinced is is true and really did happen here. All right, so uh, what about if if we're trying to go and account for all seven of these facts? Because I said earlier, you know, agnostic historians, Buddhist historians, they believe these seven things, but they don't believe in the resurrection. And so what, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to propose a variety of other theories. And we have a few minutes left, and we'll just fly through some of these. Uh, the, one of the oldest ones is the swoon theory that Jesus didn't really die. This isn't something that people today are seriously proposing. Uh, this is, by the way, the, the Muslim belief that Jesus did not die on, on the cross. And so, uh, the, the population of Muslims hold to something that historians recognize. You, you are denying one of the most historically certain facts from the ancient world, that Jesus died by crucifixion. Um, but let's just consider, okay, what, what does that fail to account for? One, it would, it would explain the empty tomb, um, it, but it wouldn't really explain, I guess it would explain in some way the appearances of Jesus. It wouldn't explain the, the belief that uh, Jesus had been raised to glory. You know, if, if Jesus, after a Roman scourging and crucifixion and being in the tomb and infection has set in, somehow managed to, to push away a really heavy stone and fight off Roman guards and show up to his followers, I think they're going to like, man, you need medical attention immediately. <laughs> I don't think they're going to think, wow, you are a product of the new creation. Um, It would uh, contradict the medical evidence uh, concerning the death of Jesus. It would make Jesus into a charlatan. So the liar, lunatic, lord scenario makes him into a liar. If he, you know, somehow he didn't die and then came around telling everybody he rose from uh, the dead, it doesn't explain how that would have been convincing at all to Saul of Tarsus, why that would uh, cause him to be glorified. And so that's why the swoon theory is dead. Uh, Stolen body theory. The, The disciples stole... The body that would explain the empty tomb, um, that would be extremely unlikely since uh, this was anticipated by the Romans and it was accused by the Jews. You know the disciples are going to come try to steal his body. That's why they positioned the Roman guard. And there's there's good evidence to to, to believe that that is a a real authentic thing. Um, and then we, we talked about earlier how people die for things that they they. That might be false, that they think is true, but they don't die for things that they know to be false. Here's, here's how Charles Colson puts it. Uh, I know this text is kind of small here, but uh, Chuck Colson, he was involved in the, in the Watergate scandal with Richard Nixon, uh, ended up in prison and coming to Christ through that, but uh, I think this is, this is a really helpful way of stating this. He says, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up Perpetrated by the closest aides to the President of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their President. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence that has testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin, and he did so only two weeks after informing the President about what was really going on. Two weeks! The real cover-up, the lie, could have only been be held together for two weeks and then everybody else jumps ship in order to save themselves. Now the fact is that all that those around the president were facing was embarrassment. Maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? Twelve powerless men, peasants really, were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stoning, execution, every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Don't you think that one of those apostles would have cracked before being beheaded or stoned? That one of them would have made a deal with the authorities? None did. All right, what about uh, the wrong tomb theory? Um, You know, the women were kind of helpless and confused and went to the wrong place, and they came upon one that was empty, but they just kind of, they they, uh, lost their bearings and didn't follow the right directions. Well, one, that that contradicts uh, positive evidence from the Gospels, and so there's no evidence for this. So, That's just something that people need to to realize. Anybody can throw out some explanation while they're demanding you to provide evidence of something while they're not providing any evidence for their explanation. Uh, so there, there's, there's no reason to believe that this is what's happened, but there's also positive reason to believe that's not what happened, right? Uh, Luke 23, uh, talking about the burial of Jesus, in verse 55, the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was Laid and they they plan to return they, they they plan to to take care of his body and and anoint it with with spices and care to uh their their leader and and there 's no reason to believe that they showed up on the wrong at the wrong tomb, but even if they did, that would explain the empty tomb it wouldn 't explain why people were having appearances of jesus it wouldn 't explain why james would be converted or why uh, Saul of Tarsus would be convinced by this, right? And, and and here's something else that's important. An empty tomb in and of itself only convinced the Apostle John that something has happened, right? Peter and John, they run to the tomb. John, you know, shows up Peter in the race and arrives there first. Um, and, and and what happens? They end up being more confused and more afraid Than they were beforehand. They didn't run off celebrating, Yay, Jesus has risen. They don't know what's happened. They think, what is this? You know, not only have they killed our leader, what what is this weird scheme of the Romans? They they want to lock the door and hide. They are more concerned uh, after encountering the empty tomb than they were before. It wasn't an empty tomb in and of itself that caused them to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Because again, resurrections happen at the end of history. It was encountering Jesus that made all of the difference. And let alone the fact that eventually somebody would have found the right tomb, right? Um, so that's why the empty tomb theory doesn't work. What about the hallucination theory? The disciples experienced grief hallucinations. Um, there's a big problem of trying to do armchair psychoanalysis on people that lived 2,000 years ago, which is why if you ask any, you know, uh, specialist in the field to psychoanalyze these guys, they don't want to touch that because they don't want to lose their own credibility. Um, but, I, I, there's, there's several problems with this. You know, not only the fact that the whole grief hallucination thought doesn't really work in in light of the particular psychology of of these men, uh, but the the big problem is uh, that early creed within months of Jesus' death testifies that there were over 500 people that saw Jesus right? Hallucinations are private mental phenomena. If, if we throw some big sleepover party tonight and, you know, we kind of set up an ice cream bar up at front and, and I, you know, I, I well, actually new scenario. We throw a, a sleepover, and, which, you know, I, I did basically last weekend at the lock-in and it's kind of frazzled my brain still, so that's why I'm working through this. Uh, I have a dream that we have set up the most amazing ice cream bar, right? It's got every flavor there. It's got all the toppings that you want. You see where my mind goes, right? Um, and I wake up and I say, guys, this is awesome. You got, you got to come taste this. Let's all go back to sleep and join me in my dream and come experience this ice cream bar. It uh, doesn't work, right? Because the dream's inside of my head, not yours. And hallucinations are inside of my head and your head. You you don't have group hallucinations of the same kind of event and experience. And it wasn't just that they saw Jesus. They spoke with him. They interacted with him. They touched him. They ate breakfast with him. Um, And again, that would not explain why they came to believe in the resurrection. Just put yourself in the mental framework of a first century Jew. You start having visions of Jesus. What are you going to conclude? Oh, wow. Jesus has been brought near to the bosom of the Father. Jesus has been cared for in the afterlife. You're not going to conclude Jesus has been raised from the dead. Um, The only explanation that accounts for all seven of these is the one that the scriptures themselves provide, and that is the foundation of our faith, that God raised Jesus from the dead. And the only reason any of these alternative theories get proposed is because people from the beginning have a prejudice against this. They assume a resurrection is impossible, so now we got to do whatever we can to come up with some other ridiculous theory to explain these things. But if you just allow this evidence, to lead in the direction that it's pointing, this is the only thing that can explain for all seven of these facts. Find uh, William Lane Craig, he's, he's uh, an apologist uh, that's written a lot in this uh, area, and he and some other writers have benefited from them when it comes to the, the resurrection evidence. Uh, he writes, Down through history, Various alternative explanations of the facts have been offered, for example, the conspiracy hypothesis, the apparent death hypothesis, the hallucination hypothesis, and so forth. Such hypotheses have been almost universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. None of these naturalistic hypotheses succeeds in meeting the conditions as well as the resurrection hypothesis. Now, this puts the skeptical critic in a rather desperate situation. A few years ago, I participated in a debate on the resurrection of Jesus with a professor at the University of California, Irving. He had written his doctoral dissertation on the resurrection, and he was thoroughly familiar with the evidence. He could not deny the facts of Jesus' honorable burial, empty tomb, post-mortem appearances, and the origin of the disciples' belief in the resurrection. That's a big statement right there. Uh, So his only recourse was to come up with some alternate explanation of those facts. And so he argued that Jesus of Nazareth had an unknown identical twin brother (laughs) who was separated from him as an infant and grew up independently, but who came back to Jerusalem at the time of the crucifixion, stole Jesus' body out of the tomb and presented himself to the disciples who mistakenly inferred that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now, I won't bother to go into how I went about refuting this theory, but I think the example is illustrative of the desperate lengths to which skepticism must go in order to refute the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Indeed, the evidence is so powerful that one of the world's leading Jewish theologians, Jewish theologians, the late Pinchas Lapid, who taught at Hebrew University in Israel, declared himself convinced on the basis of the evidence that the God of Israel raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. And again, I trust this is something we have all already known because we know him and we have experienced him and we get to rejoice in this reality this morning. Um, but doesn't it encourage you to, to, to see the, these multiple lines of evidence that provide this ring of authenticity uh, to what God has done in real history, time, and space for us and for our salvation. Amen. Let's go and celebrate that together. Thank you.